HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. interview that you're about to hear was recorded on-site at Bar Tartine in San Francisco's Mission District for a special episode of The Food Scene. I was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and lived there, uh, spent basically young years between there, um, Virginia for a little while, and then my parents split when I was like five, so my dad moved to New York City, and I, my mother was still in Michigan, so it was back and forth between those two basically through childhood. I'm a fan of the Midwest. I married a Michigander. Let's talk about how amazing that state is, or how amazing I think it is. Uh, capital of cherries. Sour cherries, yeah. Morels, asparagus. It has a bounty there. What, what did you grow up eating and cooking? I mean, I grew up, um, we had, yeah, we had awesome, really, really uh, good, good asparagus. Um, but my mother was a really good gardener. She, I mean, she still is a really good gardener, and she always had a big garden. And um, something about the climate there and the soil, it, stuff just tastes better. And it's not just because I'm from there and it tastes better when I'm home. Like it actually tastes better, I think, than a lot of uh, than a lot of other um, a lot of a lot of other stuff. I mean, there's a lot of things that California does beautifully, but there are some things that just can't you can't replicate with that Midwest soil, especially in Michigan. Other kind of foods and cuisines of Michigan. Are there any traditional dishes, or there any you know restaurants that you used to frequent? I just ordered a jar of um, a couple jars of pickled bologna. If you're lucky, you might actually get to uh, try that. It should arrive later this week, so I'm kind of excited about that. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of you know just fun Midwest stuff that we eat. I mean, there's a lot of immigrant food too. There's a lot of um, let's see if I can even think of the name of it, but there's some. Um, 
um, there's this like there's this stuffed pastry that we used to eat growing up and I can't remember the name of it now but it was really good it was brought by um, northern European immigrants um, I'll, I'll fill in the blanks on that later yeah. I can't think <laughs> of it right now um, but um, pickled everything so you know you go to a, a convenience store in Michigan and it's like the whole counter is full of like every possible pickled thing you can think of from the sausages that I mentioned to eggs and just every other kind of pickle and meat and whatever. I know you're fascinated about pickling and preservation and fermentation now, but was it something you cared about as a child or did you have disgust towards those kind of products? Oh no, I was, I, I ate a lot. I mean, I don't even eat that many pickles anymore. Like I, I you know, I do, but like I've eaten so many pickles over my life that yeah. like I don't even know if I can, how much more I can handle, but um, I, I still love them, but it's just, um, I've had so many. Um, I grew up, um, really liking sour foods. Like, I remember my dad, um, would buy me, like, lemons, and I would just eat, like, lemons when I was a kid. <laughs> like, um, and then pickles, like, dill pickles were just, you know, they were, my grandparents made them really well, so they make, um, jalapeno pickles. He called the, he just called them all pickles, but... Um, jalapenos or cucumbers. Um, he did both really well, and um, I just ate a lot of those when I was a kid and really liked them. It's just always been a part of... Um, I, I like really strong flavors, so sour, spice, um, just always really appealing to me. I know you have a large Hungarian background. Is mm-hmm. it your whole family? Is it is, is it something that was relevant while growing up? I have about seven different nationalities probably more um the hungarian is the one that i identify the most with because my father my father's father was full-blooded hungarian and um his cooking kind of inspired my dad and um and then he ended up moving there in the in the late 80s so i I spent time living there with him and kind of really getting to know that culture um more than any other however many i have in my blood but the Hungarian stuff was um, is the most um, that I'm connected to. So, give us a little background or intro to Hungarian culture and cuisine. Um, little intro to Hungarian culture and cuisine. I mean, it's the it's one of it's to me, and I think if more if people knew more about it, they'd find it one of the more interesting cuisines in the world. Um, everything's interesting, but. Um, it's. I can't think of anything that's more fusion of the cuisine than Hungarian because it's dead set in the middle of you know all these spice trading routes and it's they're nomads like the Hungarians were uh, conquerors they just rode around and pillaged everything and that, yeah, that was that was what they did for a long time and so it was picking up I think they originated somewhere in northern China possibly with the Japanese also. Um, several thousand years ago and then split off and um ended up where they are now you know i don't know was it 1500 years ago or something but um picking up all these other traditions so you see like chinese dumplings influenced in their food you see um paprika is one of the major is you know hungarian paprika is kind of the centerpiece of their of their cuisine that's obviously from the new world um i mean there's stuff from europe there's stuff from asia it's it's India all over. It's it's really uh, the Turkey conquered for a couple hundred years. They conquered um, that part of the world, so a lot of Turkish influence. Um, super fusion. 
Um, and it's really, it's got a lot of spice, which is uncommon in European food. It's like a lot of Southeast Asian style chilies and like hot, like spicy food. Yeah. So you've been to Budapest. Yeah. And what is the scene like there? Is it like shooks of Israel? Is there, uh, you know, Agora Mall where people you know, have food? Um, yeah, it's uh, Budapest. It, it, uh, when I lived there, it was the early 90s, and it was, it was quite a bit different. Um, there's a much, I, I, it seemed to me at least, that there's a much larger restaurant culture now than there was when I was there. Um, it's also a really bad restaurant culture because it's it's kind of built upon this tourist industry now, which is their is really blown up because of their bad economy. Um, they've Budapest is really kind of relying on tourism, so they've built all these restaurants and just doesn't seem to be a lot of care. Um, while I think it's one of the best cuisines in the world, the restaurant culture is really sad because it's just all these men basically that are cooking and not really interested in what they're cooking and not really caring about ingredients or, or technique or anything um but the real stuff is like in the in the kind of the beer gardens and in the homes like what what people are cooking in their, at their houses and that's the real stuff and that's everybody makes all their own um every household i'm just going to go on record and say everybody makes their own uh brandy sausage and and uh Paprika powder, like almost every single household yeah. in Hungary. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna knock on every door yeah. and see if that's true. Yeah, take the, you have my word. Yeah, um, and they all do it really well. And it, it um, there's a there's also a huge um, Jewish community still. There was an enormous one before World War II, obviously, but um, unlike a lot of other Central European. Um, countries where that where, where um, it didn't recover after World War II, Hungarian um, there's still, in Budapest there's still a, a large community and it's um, Jewish cooking has been a, a major influence on Hungarian food too so there's a lot of the, actually the best restaurants of all of the restaurants are, are Jewish restaurants yeah. and they're incredible Are they Ashkenazi? Are they Sephardic? Um, well, both mm-hmm. yep. So there's spice and then there's also oh, yeah. stewed yep. um, Your father cooked when you were growing up what were some of the dishes he made um he's been one of my probably my major influence in in becoming a cook just because he's kind of um written his own rules for for cooking he um likes to do like one big one pot uh soups and salads but often without lettuce in the salads and the soups are usually super agridolce um he picked up a lot of influence from not just from Hungary, Slo- uh, from Slovakia. So there's a uh, um, this kapuschnitsa that we might have discussed before. It's a sauerkraut soup that he makes. Um, it's it's sausage, sauerkraut. Um, often there'll be some kind of a smoked meat in addition to the the sausage, um, mushrooms, chilies, tomatoes, onions, garlic. It's just this super flavorful agridolce soup and it's one of my favorite things to eat and he's got a number of versions of that and it's it's really one of the best like kind of like soul food dishes i can think of um and then just salads like uh the notion of chopped salad that we serve here was influenced by him which is basically just he, he hardly ever uses a cutting board he'll just uh chop vegetables like kind of with his hands over a bowl and it'll be like in the summer you know cucumber tomato salami again often not always um, sometimes yogurt, sometimes not. Um, just these amazing, abundant vegetable salads that you eat 
and um, important that they're eaten with a spoon. Um, that's kind of the central notion about his salads is that you eat it with a spoon, you get the juice, you dip the bread in there, and it's a really, uh, it's a really just kind of seems like a common sense way to eat salad, but it just doesn't seem to be um, that well. People don't really seem to eat salads that way or think of them that way, and it's a really fun way to eat them. I'm not going to fast forward to now where we're at Bar Charting and your menu certainly uh, has that influence, has, has that understanding you just explained to your father. Because um, it must have built throughout life. I mean, they were staple pantry items, too. You were telling me about how raw onion is very important to your inherent being, to your palate. Mm-hmm. In what ways did you use it, eat it, and incorporate it into now? Um, well, we serve, you know, we serve a number of dishes that have some onion spice to them. Um, there are a number of people that, that are not into that, that raw onion uh, um, spice, or I mean, what do you call it, that sulfuric thing? What does yeah, it do for yeah. you? It's well, it was funny. I, it was put in front of me because you had it in Milardo with paprika. Said for Nick, I'm going to do this, mm-hmm. and I did it, and I understood why it was there, and I liked it because it's shaved thin. It's it's more mm-hmm. more of the it, it's too much sometimes that oxalic acid or mm-hmm. whatever it is that, but it made sense in that dish. Often, I think onions put in as a, an accessory that isn't associated. Mm-hmm. It's inherently part of what you do. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know if I'm answering your question, but the the onion thing, it's I'm not sure if it's an acquired taste or if it's just a genetic thing because Hungarians all I'm gonna go on the record again, <laughs> all will eat an entire onion in one sitting. Like they're it's um said to be the only culture in the world where women actually or women or men actually like the the smell of onion breath and if you go out to the bar and you bring an onion you might get lucky if you eat that onion instead of I don't know. Um but, uh, I mean, that was that's that was a huge part of my dad's cooking, and then my experience just living there when I was younger is that that raw onion spice. I was I just grew to like it. I mean, one of their favorite snacks is a big piece of toast slathered in lard, covered in raw onion with paprika powder on it, and that's that you know kind of based on what that was. You had a version of that here, but um, that Zhidoz Kenya is kind of one of the most popular snack dishes you can have there, and it's it's. Uh, it really kind of explains the flavor of Hungarian food, too. So let's talk about more of your formative years, school and work, which I'm kind of going to intertwine because I know your path in school kind of dictated what kind of work you did outside of that. So what kind of student were you? Were you interested in food then? And how did you get interested in food? Um, so middle school, elementary school, middle school, high school, um, those years... I always really liked to cook at, at home. Um, that was kind of I um, was kind of an anomaly because I would always like to make. I mean, it was it was ridiculous things like I would make spaghetti with like everything I could find in the cupboard in it, and um, just kind of invent things. When friends would come over and we'd cook stuff once in a while, but um, I uh, I I didn't ever think of it as a as a career option it was it was kind of after um after i our failed band um in high school that i realized i wasn't gonna be a rock star and i've been washing dishes for a while and moved and promoted that through the ranks of uh, a couple of michigan restaurants that that was going to be a, a lifetime thing that i 
it was a, it was a career. I just realized that it fit my personality. Um, what restaurants? Um, I was washing dishes in a place called Black Swan, which is a you know kind of like a Michigan Republican fine dining place. Um, it was absolute debauchery. I mean, it was you know substance stuff going on with the whole staff, like to and degree like old school stories you hear and like you know the flying saute pans and getting punched in the stomach from sous chefs and i probably deserved it but it was <laughs> it was it was funny it was it was a good experience but it was it was totally my personality i mean um i uh in school i, I had um i always did things that i only that i was interested in so if i was interested in a class i'd get an a if i was not interested i would barely pass the class i don't think i I might have failed one class, but there were a bunch that I uh, probably got pretty close to because I just didn't pay any attention. So if I if, if I um, could focus my interest on things, I'd do well. But if I couldn't, I'd just whatever. Um, and then, so um, cooking really makes sense for me because of that. I can't sit in an office and do something that I'm not interested in, or you know, push papers or. Um, handle bureaucracy too much it's it really i need to be cooking to be kind of happy i guess so that, that that made sense for me to follow that path um um and then yeah i just decided to go to culinary school after after a few years of uh working in those michigan restaurants um just to jump around a bit i, I went from that black swan place and then um there was a the, the restaurant that kind of made me um decide to follow the the path was this um wild game restaurant and I ended up being the chef of just by default because they kept firing the chefs uh, in front of me um, so I ended up um, taking the chef job there for a couple of years um, big place couple hundred I think we'd do like you know a few hundred guests a night or something so it was a it was quite the operation what was it called and what kind of game did you serve um, Coyote Creek was the name and um, I mean we had elk caribou venison um i think there was bear sometimes i can't even remember <laughs> like it was anything that was wild that we could get our hands on um we would even you know i think it was a big uh one of those big birds that were popular for a while super heart healthy meat um emus emus yeah. yeah or one of those yeah what's the other one? Oh, i know these turkey vulture yeah (laughs) i don't remember but it seems like this really also set off your adventurous nature in food not to not not to say that all the fermentation you do here is so otherworldly or wild because there's a basis in ethnic cuisines there's a basis in i mean this has gone on for years but having wild game must have been wild then I mean, yeah, in Michigan it was, um, it was kind of trying to push the envelope a little bit, but in reality, most of our guests probably ate possum all the time, so it was not that big a deal to them. Um, when I say that lovingly, um, possum's delicious. Um, the flavor stuff, yeah, I, I, growing up with that, I always really liked, um, um, ethnic food better than fine dining food, so going out to a restaurant... I mean, now fine dining's changed quite a bit, or whatever you want to say fine dining is, but, you know, a, a place with, like, trained cooks and trained staff, I guess is what I'm qualify- quantifying as fine dining, but those places always, it was always, you know, no sour, no spice, uh, no bitter. It was just, like, 
you know, some type of a protein that was seared and served with a vegetable and a starch in some manner with a sauce. And, like, that was basically the rule until probably very recently. And it's still the rule in a lot of places. But that's always bored the shit out of me. Like, I'm, just, I'm almost allergic to that um, approach. I am completely allergic to that approach. Um, the notion of you have to have this, you have to have that, you're entitled to have... I'm entitled to have a chicken breast. Why don't you have a chicken breast? Like, that, all that stuff just drives me nuts. So then... How was it that you went to the Culinary Institute, which is just rules? Um, well, I didn't... It was really um, just kind of an uncomfortable feeling. Like, you know, you're told all these things and this is... And I have a lot of... I actually have a lot... still have a lot of, of respect for going to culinary school, but definitely a lot of the rules don't apply to me. And we had a lot of good instructors that understood that. They understand that you have to understand fundamentals and you have to understand where things came from and then break the rules after you understand them. And a lot of the instructors get that and a lot of the, I think the school gets that. So that's fine. But saying that this is what you always have to do and there's no other way to do it, that's, that's a different approach. And I just, I don't, I don't get that, you know. Ethnic cuisines in Michigan, I've been to Ferndale. Mm-hmm. There's a big Ethiopian community. No kidding. Did you, uh, uh, what ethnic cuisines kind of set you off other than Hungarian? Well, um, I wouldn't say that where I'm from was super diverse. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, a lot of our, a lot of what I knew was through um, my mom's um, association with some different, she was uh, kind of a hippie, so she had a lot of uh, religious beliefs were kind of... um, centered towards some um, um, this SRF, this self-realization fellowship church, and they would like they had gurus, and it was basically um, centered around some northern um, Indian religion. Um, And so there were a number of Indian friends that she had in her church, and she got introduced to a lot of um, um, Indian ingredients. So we had a lot of fun spice stuff around the house to play with and lentils and sprouts and um, we were playing with you know a, a number of different types of uh, um, pastries and flatbreads and things that, that uh, she learned from her friends um, and then there was the Japanese influence like she we had uh, um, just going to the health food store like she would shop at health food stores so we would buy miso and nori and these things would be in the cupboards and Sometimes they might end up in my spaghetti with olives and whatever, lemon, <laughs> lots of lemon chocolate, who knows. Yeah. But, um, so I just, I got to kind of know these ingredients and like, while I didn't even know, understand if I liked them or not or really what was going on yet, I kind of got an early taste for things and um, understanding of, you know, kind of the texture of different things. And, um, and I think it, it helped, it helped me um, be open-minded later, I guess culinary school you're learning foundation you're learning techniques when did you start breaking rules and putting nori in your pasta well i mean that was when i was like seven but um (laughs) well for the second time yeah in culinary school i didn't you know i've really only grown an understanding for how i really feel about food in the last maybe six or seven years or less, maybe even more, more recently. I'm, I'm constantly learning more about it, but to really understand the, the, um, that I didn't want to cook food that was, you know, appetizer, 
you eat it yourself, you don't share, then you get an entree and it's a protein, veg, and a starch. I didn't really completely understand that approach until more recently. Like, it's just been kind of an ongoing thing. It was always just kind of an uncomfortable feeling, like, why do I not identify with this? I, I don't know why I, I'm not comfortable with this. I can't make a chicken breast with um, palm dolphin or whatever. Like, yeah. I... Um, so yeah, it's just been a it's been a kind of constant um, learning experience. After education, you went into the professional workforce. What were some of your first jobs, and where did it take you? Uh, well, I, I worked in a. Um, I first moved to San Francisco, and I I went right to a Ozumo, a Japanese restaurant, and um, that was a tough time because you you know you make eleven dollars an hour, you have I went to four years of culinary school, and a lot of it was loans. So it was, I think, a hundred thousand dollars in loans was after interest equals just a lifetime of debt. I don't even know how much it ends up being, but um, so you start paying five hundred dollars a month, or I think I was probably paying seven hundred dollars a month in loans at eleven dollars an hour, and then San Francisco rent—it's really it just doesn't add up. Um, and then you get out of school and you, they kind of say, hey, now you're ready to go be a professional. And you got some of your friends that are going corporate and they're interviewing with their suits on and making 80K right out the right out of the door. Um, and then I'm going into restaurants, you know, um, good restaurants, and I want to, thinking that I'm going to get out and be a sous chef and impress people and be cool. And it's completely the opposite. I'm getting screamed at by, like, the dishwashers and, like, cutting myself real bad and just, like... Uh, it was a t- it was a tough it was a tough uh, um, re-entry into the wor- into the real world after coming out of school. It's uh, I think it's you know a lot of I think all culinary school students that that choose that path have that have that same uh, reaction. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Washed rind cheeses are a fairly recent addition to the repertoires of artisanal cheesemakers in the United States. These cheeses tend to be stinkier than other types and are often high on the list of connoisseurs. Now, Whole Foods Market has come up with one of their own. The raw cow's milk cheese made by Sprout Creek Farm in Poughkeepsie, New York, is washed with six-point ale from Red Hook, Brooklyn. The beige sticky rind deepens in color as it ages. The satiny ivory cheese within is mellow with a sweetly tangy bite and a grassy aroma. The current version features six-point diesel, which is in limited supply, so stop by and pick up some before it's gone. And point-of-origin cheese is sold exclusively at Whole Foods Market in New York, northern New Jersey, and Connecticut. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. San Francisco wasn't your first culinary destination. Took a stage. Um, well, I did... I don't know if you're talking about the Vegas. Yeah. I did my internship in Vegas at the MGM. MGM Grand. Just because I was curious about Vegas and um, and uh, had never been there. and um, I don't really know. I mean, I don't have any strong feelings about Las Vegas. Like, love, hate, anything. It's just kind of this place that... Um, there's some decent food. There's a lot of chefs that put their names on, on stuff there. I had a great time. I mean, I had a, we had a um, really cool apartment like right off of the MGM, and we would just go walk around the strip and eat the buffets and go to clubs, and it, it was fun. Um, I got to move around the hotel, and I worked in a a butcher shop for a week, making or just filleting 
filet, you know, whole fillets, kind of just um, cleaning up. So you know, cleaning off the silver skin of fillets for a thousand pounds of fillet a day or something <laughs> insane for the whole hotel. Um, and then I'd spend a week like there was this mansion where um, I guess it was just villas and like they would guests that would stay in the mansion could spend many many thousands of dollars a night and it wasn't open to the regular public it was just kind of a VIP area and they were making you know bird's nest soup for people that was like three thousand dollars a bowl or something <laughs> I don't even know just absurd um, and so I hung out there and didn't really do anything for a week um, and then I spent time opening the Knob Hill restaurant which is really cool um, Chris Costantino was a sous chef there which I didn't realize until later when I saw him again in San Francisco um, um, Vegas. It was six months. I don't think I'll move back there. But yeah, but it's a really interesting kind of dichotomy. You, you talk about buffets, you know, going to eat at those places, mm-hmm. um, and then the the volume and luxury of everything else. That, mm-hmm. I mean, those are bookends. Mm-hmm. Was that was that? Did you have that insight then? Did you have that understanding that you yourself were eating at buffets and? Everyone else was. I actually cooked in the buffet kitchen for a week. I was on the yeah. fried chicken station, and I had ten deep fryers back to back, and I would fry eight hundred pounds of chicken a day. And um, it was similar to my last story about um, uh, that uncomfortable feeling and not really understanding what, why you're uncomfortable with it, and what exactly is going on. I mean. We were getting a notion of, you know, commodity stuff is bad back then, but it would nowhere near where we are now with it. Like, um, most fine dining restaurants didn't even think about that back then, right? I mean, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it was just, um, I guess, more of a quality uh, aspect, like I was, that I would think about was like, when you're serving this much food, there's something wrong. There's no way you can give someone the the love or the the um, um, the quality of food that you could do if you're cooking for somebody like directly mm-hmm. versus uh, slopping it out. Um, now I have st- much much stronger and more uh, formed opinions about um, about that kind of thing, and uh, it yeah it's it's. Um, definitely entitlement like I'm entitled to this and uh, Las Vegas is um, it's a hole in the middle of the desert and it's sucking up the Colorado River and we have to ship all this food there and it probably shouldn't exist it exists because we're entitled to it and uh, you know we'll definitely talk about commodity stocks mm-hmm. uh, a little bit later um, because what you're trying to do to eliminate those from your kitchen as far as sugars and sweeteners and, mm-hmm. and flowers is, is more than commendable. But you're coming to, you come to San Francisco and start working in a cuisine that you may or may not be familiar with at Ozuma and Nombe. Why was Japan and Japanese food such a big part of your life? Um, well, part of that early curiosity about Japanese food came from... Um those early tastes of miso and nori, and I never have been able to answer this because I've, I've, you know, I've done had a number of interviews or discussions about like why did you get into Japanese food, and I've, I don't really have a good answer for that. I had a really deep curiosity for the uh, the cuisine 
Um, basically, in my you know late teens, early twenties, um, and it just kept feeding it with you know books and and um, traveling there and staging and. Um, I don't know where that came from. I guess it's just because maybe without realizing it, I just had a real um, love of the flavors that I had gotten from there so far. The miso, the intense, like super um, umami coming that you get from miso or, or that processed uh, sheet nori or um, you know those things that I tried really early. It probably just set something off in my head that said, do you like this? Find out more about it. <laughs> I really don't know. Um, and it just grew and grew, and I knew by the time I moved to San Francisco, that's what I went to. I went to Ozumo's because I wanted to pursue, um, see where it took me trying to work in Japanese restaurants. What kind of food were you putting out at Ozumo? Um, what dishes? What products? Ozumo. Um, we had. Um, I mean, it was. It was a. Um, the menu changed. I don't know if it changed once while I was there. It was pretty much the same menu the whole time. And they had their hits, and they're kind of anti-seasonal. You know, it was zucchini and white asparagus were on the menu year-round. And um, But there were some there were some um, creative and pretty uh, uh, presentations. Um, some fun kind of fusion-y sauces that were original and and a little bit interest, and, you know, interesting. Um definitely not the way I approach Japanese food um, myself. I mean, I didn't know that then. I just I was cooking this and I was just kind of like, cool. But um, it's not my soul, but it's, it's, you know, it's good stuff. So retroactively, now with that understanding, how do you look at Japanese food? How do you cook it for yourself? Um, I look at, I mean... I've, I've said I think the Japanese have the best uh, from what I've seen at least in the world I think they have the best um, respect for food or the best um, discipline for food and the best restaurant culture um, because of that um, I try not to get too far off point but no no I want to know more about why you think they have the best restaurant culture I mean if you go to any small town, like if I go to a small town in Michigan and I go into a little restaurant, odds are the spinach is probably going to be rotten. Um, it's probably going to be dressing out of a jar. It's probably going to be like pretty bad experience, and that's not always true. Um, I think it's. I think things are changing here and getting better, but um, for the most part, we don't really put much thought into trying to make food of great quality. In Japan, it's the opposite. Like a chef. Any cook, really, they pride themselves on making things as good as they possibly can um, with the resources they have all the time and not not taking shortcuts. I mean, there's exceptions, but um, you go to a small-town restaurant in Japan and most of the time you'll remember that meal for the rest of your life unless you've been living and eating there for many years and then you might not have that much uh, headspace, but like my experience traveling there is like I remember almost every meal I've had. Um, it's always there's always something interesting, always something delicious. Let's talk about some of those restaurants and your travel because you said it was very specific too. Each town had its thing, had its you know was known for this kind of ramen, known for this kind yeah. of yeah. Every town has their the best thing in the world, so every town has 
um, is famous for one product at least. Some of them more, but like you'll be in the mountains in um, Kyushu, and you'll go to one town that has the best sweet potato shochu um, that you can find, and then you'll go to the next town, and they have this specific kind of uh, miso that they might make with like a hoba leaf or something that's that's the best of this particular type of miso you can find anywhere. And other towns recognize it. They say, if you want this miso, go to that town. If you want this soy sauce, go to that town. And it's, it's such an incredible experience. You can go from these little places and, and try things and say, this is the best of this anywhere. And it's really incredible. Um, people really pride themselves on that. And they're, they're genuine and honest and, um, uh, when they cook. And they, uh, I, I, I don't really know. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of speculating, but... Um, I think it's just that they're they're disciplined and they're um, also um, it's such a tight uh, tight culture, like um, geographically, like people are squeezed into this small area, and it's it just seems to be this um, this one cuisine that's kind of um, um, centered on this this national pride for Japanese people, for Japanese food, they're... I don't know. I mean, I'm just speculating. But it just seems to be that um, they really... Um, I guess they just love and appreciate their culture and their, and their cuisine, and they really uh, um, discipline themselves to it. I don't know. How did you translate that quality, that... that Pride, that sense of community um, and respect into Nombe. Well, when I started at Nombe, I mean, I was um, that was basically a gift. That restaurant was a gift to me from um, the gods because it was basically a place to kind of play around and figure things out, and um, it was incredible um, that the the owners of the, the hotel company um, um, gave me that opportunity, kind of put me in that chef role with, I basically had only two chef experience before um, and uh, they kind of gave me this job and said, just do it. They didn't know anything about Japanese food, so they didn't really check me. They were just like, write a Japanese just open this Japanese restaurant. We developed everything ourselves, you know, all the way from the design to the beverage program, which we were making everything in-house. Um, to the to the menu, um, so that really gave me the opportunity to kind of experiment. Now we had already um, I was already making stuff from scratch, so like the you know kind of coming from my parents' roots, like making sauerkraut and pickles and whatnot. Um, that was already really important. So from the beginning, we started make trying to make as much as we could in house from scratch. But there was a lot of pre- prepared stuff. Um, what did you make from scratch? Well, when I started there, we were making, um, I mean, it was kind of fusion-y Japanese food. We were making um, um, kimchi, uh, umeboshi. Um, we were playing around with some different um, fermented fish things and drying fish, fish sauce. Um, and, you know, there were a bunch of spices and kind of condiment things that we were making. We were trying to make tonkatsu sauces, the, you know, the bulldog sauce. Mm-hmm. Um, we were trying to make... Um, we made chichimi, which is like a seven spice. We were drying I different love those things. Little shakers, yeah. yeah. Um, and then the menu itself just kind of evolved. Um, at the beginning, 
everything, there was nothing super fusiony. Like, we didn't have, like, yuzu uh, with wasabi mashed potatoes. We didn't have any of that kind of bullshit um, Japanese fusion that you see at, like, most sushi restaurants in the United States. Um, I was always allergic to that kind of stuff. But um, really trying to make, like, um, super soulful stuff that just kind of evolved. We had to kind of, like, experiment and realize what we liked and what we didn't like and what worked and what didn't work. And thank you to all the guests that came in and had the stuff that didn't work then and still now, actually. But um, it was a... Um, it was an incredible opportunity. I don't know if I could have done it without having had that time to kind of play, I guess. You know, it sounds like you eliminated a very big cloud amongst a lot of cook's heads, which is failure. Um, and, and you completely embrace experimentation. Mm-hmm. How did that go from Nombe to Bar Tartine? that sense of let's try it out well for I guess it's just for me it's just like it's just genetic like I don't I literally cannot like physically I cannot work in a restaurant where I'm writing um where I'm cooking stuff that I'm not comfortable with it just I, I just can't do it I mean um so at at Nombe we uh I had to manage the um the banquet kitchen also so that kind of came with the turf is like you're the chef of the hotel you don't just get this fun restaurant you have to do uh banquets for 500 people (laughs) and so we'd be um doing a banquet for 200 on one floor 300 on another floor we'd have a reception somewhere else you know all through the hotel while the restaurant's going down in flames um and i i was miserable like i was absolutely miserable trying to do that stuff um, what was your what was your original question? Screw the original question. Right. Keep on going with this. Um, how it translated to bar tartine? I mean, I I'm always incapable of doing of cooking things that I'm not comfortable with. So it it was true then. It's true now. Um, I don't think that's really changed. It's just I've just gained experience. I mean, we still have big flops all the time here. You know, we're constantly playing and. Um, they're experimenting. It's a little bit more informed and educated now, and we, you know, we've really come to realize a lot of the things that we like and a lot of the flavors that we like and things I think often make more sense together now. But there's still a long way to go. Like it's many, many, many years away from think it's never going to be perfect. But like um, things are never going to make complete sense. But I think that it makes a little bit more sense every year. <laughs> I guess. How did Bar Tartine happen for you? Well, I'd opened Nome Bay with some partners. Um, wanted to get out of the hotel business um, and wanted to move to the mission because the mission was, um, you know, kind of the, no- the local place. It's the one, I think it's the best place to cook in the city because you get the youngest, kind of hippest, most adventurous crowd. You don't, it's not as much tourists which want chicken breast or um, opera people which want chicken breast in 15 minutes. Or um, whatever, it's the best crowd to cook for, and it's the best kind of just local neighborhood in the city. Um, so I really wanted to come here. Wanted to try to do Japanese food. There's not much um, of that kind of stuff in the mission, so we made that happen. Um, Open Nome Bay to some um, 
you know, did pretty well when we opened, and um, I was there for a couple of years almost, and I realized that I wanted to uh, go out on my own and just, like, be my own boss and do my own thing, and um, Chad had been, Chad Robertson, the baker from Tartine, been, uh, and his wife Liz had been coming in um, to eat at Bar Tartine, or sorry, at uh, Gnome Bay, um, I mean, he was in there probably three times a week for a while, and she would come sometimes, but he was in there, like, constantly, it was was quite a bit and uh, so I got to know him and it was I was humbled and like blown away it's like you know this guy's famous around the world for for the bread and he would he would bring it to us and I was just just awestruck it was uh, really incredible um, I'd been toying with the idea for a long time of going back to uh, Hungarian food and trying to play around with that because that was what I would cook at home uh, when I was if I was off I would not be making Japanese food usually at home. It would be um, kapushnitsa or uh, um, chicken paprikash or, you know, just a big raw onion. Um, and um, so I gave in my no- I gave uh, my partners, you know, notice that I was leaving at, at Nombe and didn't actually have a plan yet. And um, I remember one morning Chad called and he's like, what do you think about... Uh, you come into Bar Tartine and we reconcept it and we put a bakery in and we change it to more Central European food. I don't even know that I'd ever had that discussion with him about the Central European thing. Um, so again, I was planning on going out on my own with investors and opening my own place. And But then all of a sudden, Chad's calling and saying this and saying we're going to do all these new breads. And that's kind of the key, not just that Chad's cool and Bar Tartine's awesome, and, but bread like with central european food it's like the it's a staple like in hungarian food like you have to have bread on the table you have to have bread with your onion and your pork fat and paprika like so it was just kind of a no-brainer to be able to have like open this experiment with that kind of bread it was just like you literally don't have a choice i did not have a choice so aside from the breads that they make at tartine now Mm -hmm. what were developed specifically for bar tartine um well uh Bar Tartine, Chad started, um, he was really getting a curiosity for Northern Europe. And not just Northern Europe, but just experimenting with more wholesome uh, breads and more whole grains and sprouting and just different different ways to layer flavors and um, um, try these different breads that had been kind of relegated to health food stores and baked badly in the United States, you know, like um, whole grain and whole wheat kind of just meant bad and no, wasn't seasoned well and it was just tasted like crap. So he was really curious about all these things that were done well, well-ish in other parts of the world and wanted to really put his energy into trying to um, do them really well. Um, so here, uh, sprouted rye bread, uh, Danish uh, sprouted rye bread was one of his first, like a real dense... Um, loaf for this uh, baker Rene from Copenhagen that he was that he had met um, kind of inspired that one and then he got into um, doing um, all the whole grain breads here so um, porridge bread which is a super hydrated um, bread where you're basically making almost like oatmeal and folding that in that's kind of your part of the base for the bread um, with all different types of grains um, and then, you know, barleys and buckwheats and oats and just every kind of sprout, just everything you can imagine we, they've, been, they've been playing with. Um, 
And then um, more recently, even koji. We, we've been making koji here, and so they've been using our koji. So we make actually like a rice porridge and fold that rice porridge, that, that inoculated rice uh, medium into bread. Um, so there's been a lot of really cool bread, bread experimentation going on here. Aside from breads, well, actually, while talking about breads, you said a layering of flavors, which harkens to umami. And that's a very big part about how you cook. Mm-hmm. Not just Hungarian, I assume, mm-hmm. when you did Japanese, in your everyday life. What does umami mean to you? Umami to me, I mean, it's just flavor. Like, it's just, um, it's Doritos. It's like licking Doritos or, uh, um, it's hard not to use the word too much. And it's, it, it's one of those words that's, um, so in fashion now that you can't, you won't be able to say it. I mean, you probably shouldn't even be saying it now, but. We could bleep you if you want. <laughs> uh, we'll come up with another word for it. Um, but it's. It's like, you know, not as just one of the few tastes that we have, but it's absolutely, like, incredibly important um, to making things taste good and um, understanding that most cooks um, don't know how to taste for it. They taste for sweet, sour, salt, but then they don't understand that there's, like, is it unctuous, is it delicious, is it flavorful? Um, is a whole other thing that is um, that a lot of people just don't know how, don't understand don't know how to taste for. So just understanding that this tastes delicious um, because of this uh, mouth coating um, satisfying flavor. Um, um, it's incredibly important to cooking, and we try to layer that into our dishes as many ways as possible. So you can have a very subtle dish that's full of umami. I mean. People say Japanese food is mild and it doesn't have salt and that doesn't have spice and it doesn't have all these different things. But I, I personally find all those things to be lies, like or not lies, but uh, to be um, wrong. Because um, I think that a lot of Japanese food is so full of umami. Like if you'll eat a you'll eat a mushroom dish that's you know mushrooms in a broth or something, and it's so full of umami, it's almost like blindingly. Uh, I mean, it may not destroy your palate like spice, but it's like you're going to be tasting mushroom for like two hours after you eat this dish. It's so concentrated in umami. Like, um, it's uh, just an incredibly important uh, part of cooking. What foods have umami? Everything. I mean, but, you know, you read all the umami books and it's like Parmesan, tomatoes, mushrooms, um, but onions have umami. Um, um Everything, everything has umami. I, I, I mean, scientifically, how would you break it down? You'd say it's you know, uh, glutamic acid and like what, what content? You're probably better at this than I am, but um, what is the content of uh, glutamic acid or something? Is that is that how you'd say it? I think it's very personal, and like you were saying, to almost identify it as a scientific thing. Mm-hmm takes that soul out of what umami, I think, represents. Mm -hmm. So it is a hard thing. Um, And I think this is a great segue into fermentation, because the the largest part, the largest carrier of umami is often fermented things. Mm -hmm. And your soul is certainly into fermented things. When did that begin and why? I, uh, 
so if you look at a processed food um, label, it's at least in my experience, it's been that it's even like those ingredient lists that have fifty things on them. Um, there's usually like a large number of them that are fermented that are listed on there. Well, the rest of them may be, you know, some of them may be made from, um, like, diesel oil or uh, lawnmower uh, parts or something. Um, <laughs> there's a large number of fermented things and everything uh, processed because they are really the best way to kind of concentrate flavor. And so whoever came up with Doritos... Uh, they're, you know, a lot of these food scientists or food, um, what's the term, food um, designers um, are actually incredibly talented cooks that they're, they're you know, this, this tradition's kind of passed down in that industry to be able to super concentrate flavors. Um, unfortunately, they're using them for evil. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I love Doritos. Um, but um, it's... Uh, Fermented stuff is, you know, when you ferment something, it adds umami to the uh, the flavor of um, a vegetable, the meat, whatever. I mean, it's, I don't know what the percentage is, but I'm going to guess that, um, you know, anything that's not eaten fresh is basically fermented one way or another and is in the also concentrating flavor. Um, if you make sauerkraut, you know, you eat a piece of cabbage and... Um, it's fresh, it's crunchy, it's got a little bit of umami, it's got a little bit of flavor. You add salt to it and let it ferment for a month. It, it's like insanely explosive umami flavor from after you know all the, the um, enzymatic uh, processes that go on when it, when it, um, you're developing that that um, that lactic fermentation. It, it, it's insane, and it's just true with everything. Like if you turn um, cream into sour cream, or if you turn um, you know, we dry beef for Bresaola. It, you know, beef's already super flavorful, but our dried beef is like super intense. And um, we can grate, you know, we can grate dried beef on a on a vegetable and make it taste like you're eating a steak dinner. You know, you get that much like flavor out of it, out of you know a quarter of an ounce of beef versus eating a, a giant steak. Not saying that <laughs> that you always want to replace that experience, but um, fermentation that really. Uh, um, Allows you to do a lot. Gives you a lot of extra extra tools. In a concentrated way. Yeah. And, you know, thinking about umami again, I think the, the largest ingredient to create umami is time. You know, and, and that patience that goes along with it. Because uh, looking at your menu, let's, let's go over everything that you have on here that's fermented. Um, but I want to start with one, which is the pumpkin seed oil with cultured squash. Mm-hmm. How long have, was that squash cultured for? It was a year. We, um, we did about 60 liters last year of uh, butternut, which we just peeled, left them whole, and um, dropped them into a brine with some, um, I guess it was turmeric juice and fresh ginger juice, um, and maybe some garlic and a little bit of chili, but very mild uh, kind of curry brine. Um, barely tangible as even being curried but just gives a little bit of extra flavor um, and we just let it kind of sour like sauerkraut in a salt brine for a year um, we kept it at about 55 degrees we keep it in the proofing fridge with the with the bread um, which we've taken over actually um, 
We are constantly at battle with the bakers over um, proofing fridge. They hate us. Um, well, let's actually make a point because bread is fermented. Mm-hmm. And often people don't think of bread as being a fermented product, mm-hmm. but it, it is in the same vein. Oh, it's very much, very much so. Um, and that's, you know, part of the. Um, the magic of what Chad's figured out with Tartine Bread is he's he's kind of figured out how to take, you know, we, we do, a lot of people do a yeast rise on breads, which it is fermenting, but he's figured out how to guide that um, that rise and pull extract as much flavor out of the bread as you can for the perfect amount of time um, to get as intense and, um, of a flavor out of it as, as possible. And, um yeah, bread's bread's an incre- incredibly important fermented food. Um, now, a lot of the like, you know, obviously the, the processed breads are not um, um, fermented at all. They're just kind of um, white flour, bake it. That's it. Other fermented items you have on the menu right now. Let's start with kefir butter. Kefir. How do you say it? How do you pronounce it? Well, I say kefir. Yeah. Yeah, now. I used to say kefir, but Courtney told me that it was uh, uh, the other way, so. And what Courtney says goes. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Um, Well, that's something that um, I had always loved, the dairy uh, kefir. Like, um, I would always go to the Russian markets. One of my favorite things to do on my day off and get the, um, you know, you get the, like, plastic container like I guess it's like a, a quart size um, just like basically like yogurt drink and you can just slam it um, that was I've always loved those um, that's really all that I knew about it until I met Courtney and um, she was by, when I met her um, she'd been introduced to it by some um, friends up in Sonoma I believe um, but they're actually taking a slightly different form of the grain they, they call it a kefir grain which it's kind of a medium um it's a, I believe it's a cross of uh, yeast. It's a yeast and a and a bacteria that have mixed into these little grains, and I don't even know that they're completely understood. But they they were used, um, I think, um, kind of like yogurt. They would be put in like a, a pouch for nomads, and they'd have like milk that they would inoculate with them, and it would sour and turn into a beverage. Um, but they would also. Um, make a water-based uh, beverage out of them because it'll, it'll eat uh, sugar, the kefir grains. So she was making this uh, water kefir, um, which, um, you know, it's just basically like a, a whole sugar, a non-processed sugar. Um, we'll add a little bit of molasses to it and then these kefir grains and water and it'll, it'll turn into this incredible beverage. Um, and I'd never heard of that, but when, when I met her, she uh, introduced me to it and... Um, so shortly after I started here, she came on board too, and um, we started um, the beverage program here. Um, not wanting to use a lot of like bottled sodas and or any actually from the outside, we uh, wanted to come up with ways to do our own beverage program. And the kefir uh, just made a lot of sense because it's a real simple, um, delicious fermented beverage, um, and so she put it on tap. I guess. Uh, I guess we got it on there maybe like six months after I started here. Um, we got rid of all the bottled stuff. So Mexico went away and um, 
Ginger Burns Kiefer came on board. Pickles. How do you make yours? Um, I mean, we do some vinegar pickling, but for the most part, it's salt brine. So um, basically, it's just a real simple uh, brine solution that um, you can either, depending on the vegetable, it's different for everything because uh, the ratios change depending on how dense a vegetable is, how much water it has, how much it releases once you pickle it. Um, these things are always kind of fluid because vegetables are always different too. But um, salting and letting them naturally sour is basically the, um, the, the base of our pickle program. I mean, sometimes it might be with a brand solution. You know, Nukazuke is the Japanese brand pickle, but it's, they're basically salting the brand and letting that brand act like a kraut kind of thing that uh, you bury the vegetables in and they, and they pickle. Um, but ours are either always some form of uh, lactic acid uh, brine ferment. Um, one of your you know, biggest hits uh, as far as this menu goes the smoked pickles with black garlic um, I, I've had smoked it. potatoes? Smoke, yeah, sorry, smoked potatoes uh-huh. black garlic uh, in that dish, black garlic we'll talk about the fermentation of that but uh, you don't use much vinegar in your pickles but there was a mushroom vinegar in there? Or? yep um and black garlic, it's. I'm sure that there's some activity going on there, fermentation-wise, but we're actually, it's made at like 100 and. I guess some people do it a little bit lower, between 120 and 140 degrees. So there's not a ton of activity at that mm-hmm. high of a temperature, um, or if any. But so I don't even know that it's been determined if there is actually fermentation going on. But you're transforming this fresh garlic into this black, like super oxidized, sweet. Um, umami dense product um, and that's what we use we use a rice cooker to kind of transform it into this um, incredibly uh, flavor intense garlic um, the the vinegar that we uh, blend it with is steeped with dried mushrooms so we um, we're layering um, the smoked potato dish is a great example of our you know kind of approach to layering flavors it's like umami in a number of different directions you got mushrooms black garlic potatoes smoke and then a fermented you know usually um usually we use ramp greens but once we run out inevitably uh six months later we'll start using uh, right now we're using fermented wasabi leaf for instance um for that for that mayonnaise um but it's you know it's a number of different um umami uppercuts all all in one dish and it's it's fun i like it the roasted kale with seeds and yogurt um, has a couple different fermented uh, components to it. Um, I mean, yeah, the the yogurt is is the main example. Um, we we make the yogurt here, um, and then we also have a powdered yogurt that we garnish the top with. So mm-hmm. that's not really got much activity going on anymore, but it's 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 a ton of flavor because it's concentrated yogurt. Mm-hmm. So we just dry the yogurt at a really low temperature and make a powder out of it to kind of add texture and that extra flavor to um, to all the leaves of kale. Um, we make tahini for it, but that's not not really fermented. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, talk about koji again. Mm-hmm. What is koji? How is it on your menu? Koji is kind of what makes Japanese food taste like Japanese food. I mean, part of it, you know, there's obviously some other things, but it's really, I think, kind of a big part of the soul of Japanese food. Um, 
it's um, they would inoculate. Um, now, first of all, I'll preface there was we did a big koji dinner this last year with this woman Myoho um, um, Asari, and she's from Oita, which near small town in the very south of Japan, near where my father actually lives now. Um, and she runs a kojiya, which is a koji shop. And so, um, koji being the base for soy sauce, miso, um, you know, sake, all these different Japanese products that you don't, that, you know, are really associated just with Japan, mostly with Japan. A lot of it comes from China too, but um, the koji uh, uh, was kind of the centerpiece of the town. Like, people would go. Um, they wanted to make some miso at home. They would go to the koji shop, and this is the place where they kept this living koji, um, and they would sell it. Um, and so she runs one of the few that's left in Japan. And they're really trying to promote. Um, she's really uh, central in trying to promote koji as um, as an ingredient for other things now. That it's I think probably on its way to exploding into popular uh, chef culture around the world. Um, so using koji to marinate meats because it can tenderize meats or add flavor to uh, sauces or vinaigrettes. or I mean, there's, there's so many different um, possibilities for it. Um, so this, this back to the Kojiya shop. It's, it, um, so Myoho came, we did this big dinner with, with uh, Koji, and we really, that kind of pushed us to really even expand it outside of the bread and the um, um, using it for miso and soy sauce. Um, what it is, it's, it's, um, it's, a mold basically that's inoculated on rice um, usually rice but they'll use other grains sometimes and it's um, you're basically just steaming rice adding this mold to it and then holding it at a you know particular humidity for a few days until the uh, mold's taken over the rice and it's a real uh, sweet uh, mild aroma mold that um, if you're successful in uh, growing the koji right it'll that mold will um um, kind of take over um, from any other molds. You won't have any weird, strong-smelling green molds or anything. It'll just be this one white koji mold. Um, at that point, you take the rice and you can turn it into any number of products. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's been an incredible ingredient here. We've used it quite a bit. Beef tartare on koji toast with potarga. Tell mm-hmm. me how you conceptualize that dish. I don't know. Um, that kind of evolved. Um we, um, first of all, the beef we get for this is really good. It's from Mindful Meats, so these guys are using, um, um, they're bringing old dairy cows, which are some of the most flavorful animals, um, because they're older, um, and they're, you know, they're grass-fed their entire lives. They, uh, um, then they live, you know, a lot of these animals are like seven years old and up sometimes, actually, um. And we use the eye round, which is a flavorful muscle, and we grind that. So you're starting with this beef that's incredibly flavorful. Um, and then we use, um, we make a koji porridge, um, which they use uh, to make koji bread. So it's Chad's uh, ultra-fermented bread, and you're adding this koji porridge to the bread. So you're adding this fermented rice porridge medium, which is full of flavor, to this bread that he uses this technique this, with his sourdough starter that makes it even intensely more flavorful. So, um, so you got the beef and then this crazy koji bread, um, and then we use um, cultured butter uh, that we make from kefir cream. So the cream that we um, inoculate with those kefir grains we were talking about um, is um, 
soured basically like like kind of like sour cream using those those kefir grains we use that kefir cream and um, an intensely flavored dashi and potato and make a kind of a creamy sauce um, um, with butter and that kefir cream potatoes and then that intense dashi we make this creamy sauce that goes over the bread um, and we top it with um, botarga so um, we get mullet roe from Florida and we dry it and ferment it for a couple of months um, which also intensifies the flavor and then we grate that over the top so all in all you've got just layers and layers of intense uh, umami flavors um, in this one you know tartar toast so many of those ingredients are you know, in-house homemade from scratch uh, and I know you explore that to its fullest extent and lately you've been trying to eliminate a couple things, you know, uh, commodity stocks. Mm-hmm. Talk about that a little bit. We're, um, I mean, not to be too dogmatic, it's more for fun. I mean, it's a little bit political too, but um, I don't know, it might even be more political than I'm letting on, but it's, it's, um, we're, we just want to see what we can do without using um, super processed and refined ingredients. Um, Part of it is just this allergy for me to, to I keep using the word allergy. Maybe I can find a better one. No, I think it's an appropriate word with things like lactose intolerance and celiac. Yeah. You know, we're, we're seeing sure. people move towards these alternatives yeah. because they can't process the commodity. Right. Well, I'm disgruntled with the notion of entitlement and uh, that... Um, you have to have this, like you have to have Splenda on the table, or you have to have a steak, or you have to have a chicken dish. And so, um, and I think we kind of have to start, with, like, it's not even that that it's it's political, but it's kind of like we just don't have a choice. Like, I've been reading a lot of articles lately about um, the future of food and the future, you know, Meat Paper uh, magazine. I just read an article about um, the future of meat, and um, also I think from Michael Pollan, too, I believe, um, both saying that in the next 20, 30 years, we have to go back 200 years in how we eat. Um, we don't have a choice. Like, it's, you know, basically we're going to be forced to because um, we just can't keep up with the industrial cattle and industrial poultry and industrial farming. And it's just, it just seems to be that it's creating a lot of problems that we're going to have to solve with more than likely not eating as much huge amounts of protein and sugar and all these different things. So... I think it's an important time now to start playing around with um, what can we do with what we have locally. Like, can we still have dessert? Is it still going to be delicious? Like, are we actually sacrificing things? Um, can we still do... Um, hey. Can we still do... Um, um, can we still have a, a good meal... Um, the um, but here, you know, at the restaurant where the the flavor stuff I think is first to the political stuff. Um, I it's, it seems so far that every time we pull something out, we come up with something that's much cooler than something we would have made with a refined sugar. And um, I I believe that. Um, a lot of people would agree with that too. Like a lot of people, even with with palates that are not necessarily 
accustomed to things that are sweetened with apricots. Like there's ways to come up with dishes that that are absolutely delicious without using refined, completely refined ingredients. And so it's really time we, we need to start pushing the envelope on that and checking that stuff out because uh, eventually we're going to have to, I think. So what are some of the sweeteners you've come up with? Well, we're getting, um, we have great relationships with a lot of our farmers and um, I find, you know, we'll get a great deal on apples or pears or um, apricots. You know, we'll do a couple thousand pounds of those in this, from these one growers in the spring. And um, you can make a syrup out of most, uh, in one way or another, you can figure out a way to make a syrup out of most fruits, a lot of vegetables too. Um, and um, concentrated fruit syrups are great ways um, to sweeten. Um, honey, I mean, we've got our, the guys that were actually getting wasabi from fresh wasabi down in Half Moon Bay, they also raise bees. And so we have a few different connections now for affordable, um, you know, locally maintained, uh, minimally, uh, you know, not unfumigated uh, um, um, honey. So that it's uh, the honey's an incredible sweetener too. Dried fruit uh, works well for a lot of things, and then um, not eating as much super sweet stuff. Like I don't know. I guess a lot of people like to have a lot of sugar at the end of the meal, but like I don't ever get done with a meal and say I want just feel like I want to eat a ton of uh, like overly sweet stuff. Like I always want dessert to be slightly savory for myself anyway. Um, it's so far it has not been an issue whatsoever we um getting away from as much refined sugar i mean it's fun to have some brown sugar around we'll probably always have it at the house you know a little bit it's great to have for special occasions there's nothing wrong with importing things like if i want to i'll never be able to get a hungarian salami here like make one like they do there so why not import them sometimes i think there's always going to be room for that But, but like to say that we depend completely on sugar from the equator and the every restaurant everywhere and every business will always use processed sugar from the equator and we have to have this it just doesn't make sense to me so let's let's it's funny you talk about like not following the traditional rules and we're ending with dessert but let's talk about the desserts on menu um because there is acidity there is you know all those levels of savory that it's a very satiating thing um what do you have on the menu right now well, um, Courtney um, does everything here, but she is uh, in charge of me and everything else, but um, has been developing a lot of the desserts. Um, there's a rye porridge. Um, it's sweetened with apricots. Um, and um, that's kind of modeled after a Danish... Uh, breakfast or dessert um we have a celery root cake that's sweetened with koji because the koji that that whole process sweetens the rice quite a bit um so it's sweetened with a little bit of honey and a little bit of koji uh, making it so that it's not overly honey flavor but um it's a pretty sweet dessert um and so it's kind of modeled after like a japanese mochi cake um where we um we'll steam celery root and we add our own rice flour koji rice flour to sweeten it and it also um solidifies it when we steam it and then honey and uh, we top it with uh, sour cream and um, there's an intense uh, apple cider molasses that we uh, um, drizzle on that too 
that uh, sweetens it. That's I think it's plenty sweet. It's delicious. Oh, yeah, that's good. Um, what else do we have on the menu? The, the, the carob. Because carob, I've always known as bastard chocolate. Um, yeah, carob is uh, it's a tough one. Um, and we still have, we still use a little bit of chocolate. We still use a little bit of sugar. Um, and that dessert actually does have some sugar still. Um, but the, uh, um, the carob is, uh, I love chocolate. And I, uh, grew up hating carob. But I think that it has such an intense aroma that is off-putting to people because it's never been, it's, it's been relegated to health food stores, um, just like the whole grain breads were for years and not ever appropriately uh, used but when balanced and spiced appropriately and used with other ingredients I think it's, a, it's an incredible uh, ingredient just like anything else could be you know um, I hated eggplant for years and figuring out ways that I like to cook it changed all that it's not one of my favorite things so give care of a chance I guess um, yeah what else well, talking about the future of food, you must have ideas of what you're trying to do or where you're trying to go. And we've talked about a little bit of that, but do you see new ingredients, new flavors, new cultures really resonating in the, in the greater culinary community? Um, new cultures? You mean like newly discovered to us? No, I mean, or it could be uh, antiquated cultures, or... Um, you should probably look at this guy. I think that... Um, I think that uh, Central Europe is the wave of the future. <laughs> I'm not just saying that because we do some Central European food here, but I just think that... Um, I mean, you're seeing a lot of these Danish guys right now, um, that, you know, kind of been the, the leaders in the past several years, are absolutely salivating over Mexican food. And um, who, they're opening Mexican restaurants, and, like, like they're coming to visit here. We've got chefs that have come to visit recently from Sweden and Denmark, and um, all they want to do is eat tacos, like taco, <laughs> taco, burrito, whatever. It's like they just can't get enough. Um, and people are starting to open Mexican restaurants that are um, a little bit more highbrow and like you know to have a fine dining restaurant you don't necessarily need to be doing um, a particular type of food anymore like ethnic food is making its way into that uh, echelon of restaurant and I think that you're start since you're starting to see spice and sour and those kind of things um, in those kind of restaurants I think it's just a short matter of time before um, people are looking everywhere for the next new thing and like what what can we possibly uh, what could be what could what has not been explored what has not been interpreted yet and I think that even below Mexican food I think um, Mexican food's always been just like such a peasant food that it's, it's no respect to see that that's happening now for Mexican food I kind of feel like Central Europe, which has always been like sausage and dumpling, and that's it. Like, I, I it just makes sense to me that that's going to be uh, in people's radar in the, in the near future.
Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.